Hello, this is Elizabeth Mamali from Bristol Doctoral College, and you're listening to PGR Cast Research in Times of Adversity. Today I'm talking to Steve, a third year PhD student in the history department, who, like many postgraduate researchers, had to make adjustments both in his research project and his living situation as a result of the pandemic. We talk about a wide range of topics today, from workspace politics at home and adversity as a creative force of disruption for a research project, to careers choices and the importance of making time for work experience during your research degree. It is a chilly autumnal afternoon in Bristol and we are meeting on Zoom. Steve, hello and welcome to our podcast. How, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you, Elizabeth? I'm, uh, I'm really well. I'm really glad it's the end of the week and I'm uh, just looking forward to taking a, a weekend stroll, really, and still some nice autumnal colours out there to enjoy. It's the simple things nowadays that uh, I try to make the most of. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait for the weekend either. My landlord's away, so I have the house to myself, which is a, a rare treat. So quite oh, looking forward excellent. to that. So, um, Steve, tell me, what is your research about? Uh, so I'm, I'm a third year PhD student uh, in the history department. And my research is all about the history of the BBC World Service. So it's that, that part of the BBC which um, is dedicated to broadcasting to all parts of the world that is not the UK. Um, so it broadcasts in, I think, currently something like 40-ish lang- different languages, plus English. Um, so my sort of focus in particular is looking at quite recent part of the, of the World Service's history. So um, from 65, 1965 through until 1999. And I look at the relationship between the World Service and a variety of different um, humanitarian human rights and overseas development organizations, NGOs, international organizations, um, individuals from that kind of world. And yeah, basically looking at that relationship and how important that relationship was in terms of uh, shaping the, the World Service's kind of um, role uh, in that period from the kind of end of empire, so in the mid 60s through until the end of uh, end of the 20th century. Yeah, it sounds very um, intricate and an interesting topic. What what drew you to studying broadcasting specifically? What led you to um, this topic in particular? Hmm, well, uh, my master's degree, I studied my master's degree at Central European University in, in Budapest in Hungary. And I ended up writing my master's thesis all about radio there because they had some amazing archives for a, a radio station called Radio Free Europe, which was a Cold War radio station funded by the Americans that was broadcasting across the Iron Curtain throughout the Cold War. And that sort of led me to, to start thinking, I wonder if anything similar was happening with the BBC and with the UK and ended up um, sort of uncovering a bit during my master's, but um, didn't really have the time or space to, to explore that in, in more detail in my master's thesis. So I thought, well, this is probably a good basis for, for a PhD. And uh, yeah, lo and behold, there's loads and loads to get, to get into. So um, I think it was a, a decent choice, yeah. It's actually quite a, a common route to a PhD. Uh, so we see a lot of master's students developing a passion for their topic in their uh, master's dissertation and then just wanting more space and more time to, to dig deeper, really. And I think it's quite a good route into a PhD because it means you roughly know what to expect in terms of uh, ways of working and in terms of research. It gives you a really good flavor. 
before you commit for the for the long run. Yeah, definitely. For me, I I was lucky enough to do a two year master's course. So the first the first year of the master's was a lot of classes, and then the second year was really quite devoted to to the research side of things. So really, it was almost like having the opportunity to do a a, a mini sort of year long PhD, um, or more similar to what I imagine an MPhil sort of feels like, even though it was an MA course because because it just had a bit more time. Um, so yeah, I think that was a really nice sort of. Um, entry to the idea of what a PhD would do, what it would feel like um, to do that for a longer period of time. So yeah, it was a really positive experience for me. Yeah. And uh, what about your methodological approach? How do you conduct your research? Are you working a lot with archive material? I, I was working a lot with archival material um, until things got a little bit um, um, disrupted by, by, by COVID. But uh, yeah, in the, first year of, in the first year of my degree, I spent quite a lot of time at different archives, um, both in the UK. So the BBC obviously has its own uh, big written archive center. I spent quite a lot of time there at the National Archives in, uh, in Kew in London. Um, and then I spent a little bit of time, I went back to Budapest, which was really nice. They've got um, an archive there called the Open Society Archive. And there they've got the collections of some of some NGOs um, who I've been looking at in terms of their relationship with the BBC. And that was really nice because I got to see a lot of all my old friends from Budapest where I lived during my master's and I had, had good relations with the people who run that archive already. Um, so yeah, I managed to, managed to do uh, collect a fair amount of stuff. And then, yeah, obviously since lockdown, traveling or, or visiting the archives hasn't really been an option, but um, that's where the sort of oral history side of my projects has kind of kicked in. So I've done a lot more interviews. I interviewed, I think, 11 former World Service staff employees um, over the last sort of six months or so over Zoom or Skype or telephone. Um, and that that side of the project has probably ended up being a little bit bigger than I initially intended just because, you know, access to other source materials has, has been limited. Um, so it sort of made sense to sort of think, well, you know, this is something that I can do at the moment. Um, and, and also the, you know, the, the, the material that I'm getting from these interviews is really rich and really interesting. So why not spend a bit more time than I initially planned, um, on that side of things. So, um, clearly you're already, uh, alluding to how the pandemic has, uh, affected your work. So, you know, our podcast explores how postgraduate researchers deal with adversity and these past few months have been particularly challenging because we were all faced with unexpected and very significant disruption, which is continuing to unfold in ways that are very unpredictable. So what, what would you say were the main ways in which the pandemic uh, affected your research so far? Hmm. Well, um, I mean, you know, what I was just talking about in terms of access to resources was was a big deal. But really, I mean, when it was all starting to happen back in March, uh, I took the decision to leave Bristol and um, to spend the lockdown um, living with my partner, who's based up in Durham. So I, you know, I kind of I left Bristol, and it was definitely the right choice because you know things ending up the way that they did and it lasting as long as it um, did slash has. I, you know, I'm definitely happy that we were able to spend it locked down together rather than separately. Um, but that just meant, yeah, it sort of meant that uh, everything changed in terms of, you know, obviously not being able to get to the library, not, um, um, 
and also work, sort of workspace changed a lot. So it was the two of us in our quite small uh, one bed flat in Durham, trying to find a way to to both work um, at the same time. So my partner is also doing a PhD. Um, so it's the both of us um, sort of trying to uh, make sure that we can continue to, to, to get stuff done um, while also kind of bearing in mind that you're probably not going to be as productive as you want to be or, you, or, or as you were previously because, you know, it's quite a distracting time. There's a lot going on. Um, so sort of, I think, coming to terms with, um, yeah, the kind of practicalities of how do we kind of make this space work as a place for us to do our work and also just sort of the expectation side of things. I think that took a little bit of getting used to. Um, just finding that I was more tired at the end of the day and then I'd look back and think, well, why am I so tired? I haven't left the house today. <laughs> but, but you know, I think everybody recognises that, you know, staring at screens and speaking to people over Zoom or whatever is somehow more tiring than, you know, going about your day and being able to get out and, and about. So um, I think that's been a bit of an adjustment. Yeah, just ex my own expectations of myself and, and how much I can get done in a day. I think that has changed a bit. Absolutely. Um, there's has been so many adjustments that we've all had to make and um, you're, you're picking up the kind of working space. And if you're sharing that space with, with a, a partner or um, a roommate, that has its own kind of uh, dynamics to, to negotiate and to make things work. Um, I, I'd like to bring you back to your uh, methodology because you mentioned that because of the pandemic you weren't able to access um, archive materials anymore and you um, had to conduct more interviews perhaps than you initially thought. How, how did you go about uh, making that methodological turn? Was it a straightforward decision for you or was it something that you had to discuss with your supervisor and get advice on? I think so quite like by an absolute stroke of fortune really I'd managed to do quite a big archival trip in in January just before you know lockdown sort of kicked off and so I was you know when, when March came around I was sitting on quite a big sort of cache of of archival material that I'd yet to sort of work my way through um so for the for, for the first couple of months really I was just going through all of my photos and notes that I'd made when I was able to get to the Oxfam uh, Oxfam collection at the Bodleian in Oxford uh, and then once I sort of worked my way through that um, I had already sort of planned to spend the next couple of months um, on two big two big uh, kind of aspects of of the um, of the work one being these oral history interviews and the other was to try and write an article to, to try and get something published that's sort of adjacent to the to the PhD and both of those aspects of the work just lended themselves quite well to the to the situation you know I kind of I had everything that I needed to get on and write this article and you know I was kind of forced to <laughs> to, to to write it because there wasn't very much else interesting going on so it kind of worked as a kind of self-imposed or kind of you know a, a forced kind of writer's retreat almost um, and then with the, with the interview side of things I did have a really good conversation with uh, Grace Huxford, who's one of one of my two fantastic supervisors, who um, has a lot of expertise on oral history, and and just asked her whether, um, yeah, if there's anything I should bear in mind as I as I go ahead in terms of interviewing people, and whether um, I should sort of change any aspects of my approach on the basis of you know this there's a pandemic going on, should I should this affect the kind of questions that I ask people? Um, and should it affect my kind of approach 
um, to being an oral history interviewer. Um, and I think we sort of went ahead with it. And what I found, I think it was actually easier for me to get hold of people who I wanted to, to speak to um, because a lot of the people who I was interviewing are older and maybe in their 60s, 70s or 80s. Um, so a lot of them were, were shielding uh, during the pandemic and they didn't have an awful lot that they could do because they couldn't leave the house. And so I, th I feel like I got a lot more responses from people who are eager and willing to talk to me on the basis of them probably being quite bored at home. <laughs> um, and I think that worked to my advantage, really, because I was able to um, to get responses and set up interviews with, with a really nice variety of different people who held a lot of very different roles within the World Service since um, from, from the mid 60s through until very recently. Um, so in that case, I almost had this this captive audience that I was able to take advantage of, which maybe would have been a bit different um, if, if we weren't going through the pandemic. It sounds like you might have also had an unexpected positive influence uh, on these people, just giving them something that they are interested in to talk about. Um, and I'm, I'm a qualitative researcher by background too, so I know the importance of having participants to interview who are really keen to expand on what they're talking about because that's what gives you really good quality data um, so it sounds like in a challenging situation there was something positive that came out of it for your research and for your uh, empirical work specifically I think so and I think you know an interesting thing that I'll now be able to do that obviously I wasn't planning to do as part of the project is to just reflect on well how might the pandemic have influenced have shaped the kind of the data that I've collected, you know, how might it have um, influenced the things that my participants wanted to talk about in our in our interviews? So it kind of adds another sort of um, lens to to kind of approach that data in, in an interesting way. It is. Are you considering potentially a, um, you could have a methodological paper even out of this? Yeah, that's that's very true, and I think. Um, I think that's one thing that we all as researchers doing research at the moment can sort of reflect on is the fact that we are living through unprecedented times and doing research in unprecedented times. And that does lend itself to opportunities at the same time as we have to acknowledge the restrictions that it has imposed upon us that in terms of thinking about um, being creative or uh, adaptive with our like methodological approaches and, and just sort of um, demonstrating flexibility, because I think um you know, things, things change and things go wrong when you're doing a really long research project, whether there's a pandemic going on or not. But everybody's had to be especially sort of flexible and, and um, reactive uh, as a result of, of this. And that might actually, you know, for a kind of generation of, of early career researchers moving forward, that might actually stand them in good stead. You know, that, that, that knowledge that, well, hey, I've managed to pull together some, um, some good research in a pandemic um, I can probably, you know, deal with other challenges as they as they crop up. Absolutely, and and a lot of this is really about um, adaptability. And to me, it sounds like you had to adapt things both in your research and in your um, in in your personal life. Um, so, in light of all this, what do you think are the main skills that you developed as a result of of having to navigate the disruption caused by the pandemic? Hmm. So from a, from a kind of purely research focused perspective, I really enjoyed having the, um, the freedom to, to kind of develop my own approach to the oral history interviews. 
So I would say having conducted, I think I conducted 11 uh, between March and, and October, basically. Uh, and um, although on the one hand, it would be nice if, if every interview kind of proceeded in exactly the same way to make it, you know, quite scientifically rigorous and the rest of it. When I, when I look back at them, I can see that there are quite big differences between how I was doing it in March and how I was doing it in October. And I, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that that's just something I'll need to reflect on when it comes to writing up, um, you know, in explaining why it is that maybe I approached, framed questions in slightly different ways at the start and at the end. That sort of is kind of indicative of, of a wider point, which is just, um, I think, learning to be comfortable with flexibility and, 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 and adapting is a skill in itself. So, you know, just feeling like uh, the fact that you're doing things quite differently to how you initially proposed them isn't, um, isn't a problem. Um, it, it can actually be a sign of, you know, of growth, basically, of kind of a, a, an adaptation to lead to an improvement on your initial plan now that you've got more data or now that you've got a situation that you need to adapt to. So I think being comfortable with, um, with, with things changing um, is a skill that um, has kind of been forced upon us, but I think it w will be really valuable moving forward. I'm so glad you said that because coping with change is the one constant when doing a, a research degree. Um, topics change, methodologies sometimes don't yield sufficient results, supervision teams change, and of course, personal circumstances change very significantly. And so that flexibility you mentioned as a, as a sign of growth um, and the kind of resilience really that adaptability requires are skills that you graduate with. They're things that make you um, an effective researcher at the end of your uh, research degree. Do yeah. um, you, this is a bit of a difficult question perhaps, but um, a lot of postgraduate researchers are at the moment feeling a bit demotivated with their work, depending on their stage they, they're at, of course. Um, and in the current climate, we still have a lot of restrictions in terms of access to, to disruptions, uh, activities, or in some cases, resources. Do you have any, um, any words of wisdom or, or any advice for those postgraduate researchers that might be listening to us? Well, just that it's extremely normal to, to have periods during the PhD where you feel less motivated. Uh, and that we're probably all experiencing one collectively at the moment and and that that's absolutely fine and good thing to acknowledge um i think for me when i'm feeling particularly demotivated if i'm you know the thing that, that 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 annoys me the most is when i'm trying to write something and i just can't get the bloody words on the page um and I, i'm sure that that's something that you know most ptrs go through and when that's happening for me usually the answer is for me to just step away from it for an hour, half a day, maybe a whole day, maybe even longer if necessary. Um, because, you know, if I'm not getting stuff down on the page, it's not, it's, not, um, it's clear that I need to sort of reset. And, and, and um, for me, over lockdown, you know, as soon as we were able to get kind of get out of the house, that made a huge, huge difference because I, I do enjoy spending time outdoors. And um, so for me, I would, I would build in time during the day where I would get outside and, and go for a run, for example, um, and running is a good, a, a good, a good example of an area where I set myself a little project outside of the PhD. So when when lockdown was announced, within a couple of weeks, I decided that I would 
um, start training to run a marathon. Um, but I haven't run a marathon and I kind of um, don't, essentially I started running quite a lot, like, you know, four or five times a a week um, and had a little regimen that I was following just to give myself a little project, a little thing to think about that wasn't the PhD and wasn't the pandemic. Um, And that worked really well. And I ended up not being able to run the distance that I intended to because I got a little bit of an injury, which was annoying at the time. But, but looking back, it doesn't really matter that I didn't actually end up running the marathon distance. What matters is that I had that really helpful and healthy distraction um, that, that, that lasted for months. So I'm really pleased that I sort of embarked on that, like took that decision to, to follow that re- uh, regime and, and run regularly and just give myself that, um, that kind of headspace that you get from being outside um, doing something where, you know, it's just me my headphones and my little Strava app telling me how fast I'm running. Um, and that worked really well in terms of giving me a built-in break during the day and just a bit of space to kind of um, mull things over subconsciously, I suppose. And it sounds like you were very disciplined about this hobby, which is really a really good way to direct attention away from the kind of stresses and, and anxieties of, um, of the work. Is there, is there anything else you enjoy doing when you're not in, in research mode? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, it was really helpful to have that sort of, uh, yeah, fairly regimented kind of, I'm going to run for 40 minutes today and then tomorrow I'll run for 60 and I'll, I'm going to go out at one tomorrow and I'm going to go out at two. To, and what um, I found it really helpful, but obviously in other circumstances, you, what you don't want to do is kind of put yourself in a position where you're feeling pressure about your leisure time in the same way as you're feeling pressure about your academic deadlines. Um, so as well as, as well as running fairly regularly, like for me, I think it's really important to have lots of time where you don't build in this is what I should be doing right now. So for, for, for me and my partner, um, you know, we're very active. We're very conscientious about our work, but we're also very conscientious about Monday nights, ordering pizza and watching Netflix. Like that's just kind of became a, a really important part of our weekly routine that, you know, um, taking that time to just not think about work is so, so important. And, um, yeah, we wouldn't kind of switch that, change that for anything, really. That that's just as important as running, as going to the gym, as as uh, as eating well, whatever. It's um, that kind of unstructured downtime is just as important for us. And perhaps that's even more important now because uh, home for many of us has now become a full time office, which wasn't necessarily the case before. So being able to kind of switch off and use that space to, to relax and, and for leisure really um, has become even more important. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, our our home office setup was, you know, we've, we've got one, we've got the bedroom and we've got the living room. Uh, and we did, we, we, we bought a couple of desks, basically, and we put them in the living room. Um, and we were both working in the living room together most days um, and and it wasn't working very well <laughs> because um, we were sort of tapping away and distracting each other and 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 um, so we ended up deciding that we would work in separate rooms basically so I'd work in the bedroom in the morning and, and Maya would work in the um, living room in, and then vice versa in the afternoons and then we'd come together for lunch and that worked so much better in terms of getting stuff done and and also was really helpful in terms of us not feeling like we were spending every hour of every day together because that can bring its own stresses as well. It's uh, office politics at home. Yeah, exactly. 
So, um, Steve, what are your future plans? What's next for you now? Well, so I'm just going into the third year now of the PhD and I am funded for, um, so funded for one more year. So as things stand without any sort of COVID related extensions, which, which might be a possibility somewhere down the line, but I'm sort of not banking on it. As things stand, my money will run out um, basically in October 2021. So the aim will be to, to, to be in a position to hand in and, f and finish the, the PhD as close to that as possible. Um, so I, I imagine I've got probably a good year now to to um, to start really. I mean, I'm going to be writing an awful lot, especially after Christmas. So I've got a bit of teaching that's happening between now and Christmas in the department, which I'm really enjoying. But after Christmas, my teaching drops away, and I can focus fully on uh, the 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 main work that has to be done, which is somehow getting eighty thousand plus words down on page. Um, so I, I think that will keep me quite busy. Absolutely. Um, are you having any thoughts about a career afterwards and you, what you might like to do? Yeah, it's, uh, that's actually something I spent an awful lot of time thinking about during the, during the lockdown. Um, so for me, I think probably for most PGRs, when you go in, uh, when you start, um, you're probably thinking about pursuing an academic career. Um, uh, certainly my peers in, in the Faculty of Arts, I think that most people you know, they like academia, they're comfortable in that sort of environment. They've obviously done well because they've, they've managed to secure a place as a PGR and they can see themselves teaching or researching as, as a career. And that, that was kind of my assumption as well when I, when I began. And, and although I'm really enjoying the process of, I really enjoy being a PhD student and I do enjoy the research, I, I really enjoy the teaching that I've been able to do. I don't think that at the end of this, I'm going to be applying for, for academic jobs. Um, and sort of coming to that realization, I think, um, sort of, I basically have known that since about halfway through the PhD. And I think that's been really great because it's given me a lot of time to think about, well, what are the things I really do enjoy about doing the PhD and where outside of academia might I be able to, you know, continue to do the things that I do enjoy that I feel I'm good at, um, that aren't, that aren't that kind of, um, um, you know, applying for a postdoc or looking for lectureships or whatever. So having the space to kind of uh, explore that and finding that within the university, there are so many opportunities to do things that aren't your PhD, that aren't your direct research, that, that can help you on that sort of path towards working out what you're good at and what you enjoy has been, uh, has been a really positive experience for me. So are you um, interested in, in the higher education sector now? Yeah, absolutely. That's right. I, I think um, it's really once once you realise just how many opportunities there are to work in HE that aren't, you know, um, becoming becoming an academic in, in in a specific field. There's just so many different kind of iterations of working, doing the things that I know that I enjoy. So I, like, I enjoy working with young people. I enjoy working alongside really smart people. There's so many smart people within HE. Um, I think that the university is a really fascinating kind of institution that that um, where you know so many things are bound to change, um, especially you know in response uh, in particular to the pandemic at the moment. But just moving forward, I love kind of thinking more uh, long term about what universities are for and who they're helping and where they kind of fit into society more broadly. Uh, but I also like the sort of nitty gritty as well. So. 
one of the really nice things I've been doing while be, while being a PGR is um, working part-time with the university's quality team at Bristol um, as a student quality reviewer. So uh, the quality team sort of reviews the quality of, uh, of all of the different courses that the university offers, undergraduate, postgraduate, whatever. Uh, and my, my role as a student quality reviewer is to meet with the student representatives on, on those courses, just have a conversation with them, have a look at some data that's been pulled from previous years to see what, um, you know, how they're feeling about the course, areas that might be able to be improved, whether that's you know, things to do with assessment, things to do with supervision, things to do with um, f- you know, feeling connected to other people in, in the department, whatever it is. And then feeding that into the into the process of of of, um, of the quality review, and I've loved that opportunity because I've been able to meet reps from um, courses that I you know have nothing have no previous understanding of experience of people who are studying dentistry and engineering and people from the life sciences faculty. So it's just allowed me to see just how broad and diverse the university is as a kind of uh, working ecosystem, I suppose. Um, and that's really like encouraged me to think about how choosing a career in HE opens up so many doors. There's so many directions that you can go in. So for me, that does sound quite appealing. Yeah. There's a few things from your uh, response that I, I'd just like to unpack briefly and, and highlight for listeners, because you probably know that part of my role with uh, uh, Bristol Doctoral College is to help postgraduate researchers think through their personal and professional development. Mm-hmm. And so I always stress the importance of taking a step back and planning your development, being mindful of what career steps you may want to take next. And so in your case, I think we have a really good example of a postgraduate researcher who you're clearly very passionate about your research, but you don't necessarily want an academic career. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you've taken time to reflect on that and you've also identified you know, higher education as an interesting, interesting sector uh, to work in a capacity other than being a researcher. And more importantly, you've, you've taken a concrete step to help you build skills and experience that will make you more employable in this area. And I'm highlighting this because it's really easy for uh, postgraduate researchers to get absorbed in the specifics of their thesis and forget about um, personal and professional development or make time for it in a way that will make them more uh, employable when they're in the uh, job market at the end of the um, degree. So it's really interesting to hear your story. Can I also ask, how did you identify this work opportunity? How did it come about? That's a good question. I think I was just responding to an email and I'm not sure whether that came from, it could have come from the BDC. Um, I also had some really good interactions with the career service um because they they give some fantastic advice and i might have been put might have been informed about um that particular role through through brian ian right who's who's the pgr um person of the career service who, who who who's sort of responsible for um for pgrs or was at the time so it might have been her that put me onto that but um i also like i'm always on the lookout for um these kind of small uh, part-time roles which won't take up a huge amount of my time you know a few hours a week um, but will give me you know experiences within the university that are, that are quite diverse or different from from my sort of day-to-day um, so like I know the BDC puts out these these bulletins that are kind of full of opportunities for for PGRs to 
connect with um, PGR, the you know the wider PGR community because there's so much interesting stuff going on and so many interesting people. Uh, and I found a lot of the BDC's events um, useful in, in in that respect, um, both in terms of you know the kind of concrete what you're getting from the session, but also the abstract kind of getting to know other people within the, your PGR cohort who are doing very very different work from you, um, but you can still sort of learn a lot from and and, and enjoy their company, of course. And it's exactly this type of, of uh, process of taking that step back and thinking, what skills do I want to develop? What opportunities are there available for me to get involved with, to gain more experience? And of course, making time for this, because postgraduate researchers have a very uh, busy routine as it is. So making time for professional development is a challenge in and of itself. But I think that it, it just really pays off in the long term, especially for anyone who might be um, kind of exploring really what career options are available to them. Yeah, and I think, you know, you kind of have to take advantage of the fact that as a PGR, there are opportunities to kind of organise things yourself or to tap into a little bit of funding so that you can, um, you know, I, I'm thinking of like the PGR Community Fund, for example, if you have an idea um, for a piece of training or an event that's not being offered already, you can kind of take the initiative yourself and, and, and apply to the BDC and ask for, you know, a small grant, a little bit of money to get it off the ground, whether that's inviting a speaker, um, whatever it is. And I, I feel like th those opportunities just to give people a little bit of um, uh, a little bit of encouragement to take to take their own initiative are really valuable. And I think that's something that I've probably ended up getting a lot more from my PGR experience than maybe I expected at the time was just um, feeling like I'm in a um, in an environment that's quite supportive of the of the of the fact that not everybody who does a PGR is going to go on to have a kind of um, classic, straightforward academic career. Um, and, you know, the statistics back that up, don't they? It's, you know, I think it's, you know, as a proportion of, of, of PGRs, fewer and fewer are having the kind of traditional academic career where you kind of, you know, go do a postdoc or become a lecturer and then keep doing that for 30 plus years. I think the stats show that most people's careers are going to be a lot more diverse than that. Um, and so... For me, it's really important to to bear that in mind um, as I'm making my way through through my studies and try and yeah, as you say, not not sort of just zoom in on the specifics of my project as interesting as it is, um, and to sort of keep an open mind as well about what happens next after the PGR. Well, thank you very much for sharing all this, Steve. I, I wish you all the best for the exciting stage of, of writing up your thesis and for your you. uh, next, next professional steps. And it was a, a real pleasure hosting you today. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. Lovely to talk to you. That was Steve from the Faculty of Arts with some sound advice on adaptability, balancing research with other professional and leisurely pursuits, and on finding the things you enjoy about doing a research degree in a career outside academia. It's goodbye from me until our next episode. This is Elizabeth Momali from Bristol Doctoral College, and you are listening to PGRCast, Research in Times of Adversity.